Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. We all know Gen Z is the most connected generation, but Snapchat is also seeing them change the future of communication as we know it. Not only is the Snapchat generation building more personal connections with brands through vertical video, they're also using augmented reality to discover and experience new products. You can meet the Snapchat generation and learn more about them by visiting snapchat.com generation. That's snapchat.com slash generation. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. This is the Adweek Podcast, where we talk about marketing, media, pop culture, technology, because in the end, everything is an ad. I'm David Greiner. I'm the creative and innovation editor with Adweek. And I'm Ko Im. I'm the community editor at Adweek. And we are joined by special guests from our Adweek Academic Council for this back to school episode because, David, it is already August and parents, students, marketers, professors, we're all still kind of waiting to see what's going to happen to the academic year, right? Where, yeah. where, where are you with that? With your well, kids? Nor- yeah, normally, like my kids' school, I'm in the South, so our, our schools would be starting up, oh, good Lord, next week. Um, and, uh, we, uh, maybe the week after, but, uh, it's delayed, no shock. <laughs> and then, uh, and then when we do quote unquote, come back, uh, my school system is offering up, uh, uh, you know, rem- all fully remote, uh, as an alternative. And personally, I won't be surprised if they end up going all remote, which is something we will definitely be talking about today. And, uh, very excited as you mentioned to have some experts here to talk with us about this kind of the state of education and education in marketing. So uh, tell us who we have today, Co. Yes, we want to welcome in Yusuf Dahl, Director of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Lafayette College. He's dialing in from Pennsylvania and Beth Egan, Associate Professor of Advertising at Syracuse University. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> so, um, let, let's start with uh, Yusuf. Um, both of you actually have voice pieces or opinion pieces on adweek.com this Monday um, discussing, you know, what is the state of marketing education? You guys had an interesting past semester going from in-class to 
remote instruction. What was that like, first of all, Yusuf? Uh, well, certainly a challenge. Um, we know that um, a large percentage of students, you know, according to one survey, 78% of students felt disengaged uh, with the abrupt uh, transition to, to online education. So, you know, it was certainly a pivot that uh, higher education in general isn't used to making so quickly. Um, and I think there there were challenges uh, both at the student and at the faculty end. Yeah. And Wait, from- I, I'm, are you are you implying that that higher education is not a nimble and uh, rapid uh, rapidly evolving <laughs> involving industry? <laughs> You, you must not have listened to Scott Galloway's uh, piece at the Adweek conference. <laughs> oh, how topical. You're, you're presaging. Uh, we are going to be playing that exact audio in just a little bit. But I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. I just had to. It's been it's been fascinating watching uh, many friends of mine who work in higher education. And they're just like, wow, this is really not playing to our strengths. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to also ask Beth, you know, especially for me, um, I did study communications, less so marketing, less so business, more so journalism. But I imagine Beth for marketing students that, you know, might have been working on projects together or trying to just have discussions together that it was also difficult. So where were kind of the silver linings um, for this past semester that you want to bring forward to the next? I was actually extremely impressed with how the students reacted to the pivot. So absolutely right, as academicians, we're not very good at it. Um, But I actually saw some innovation from my students that was very encouraging and, and just a whole lot of fun. So as you can imagine, they had to present their final projects via Zoom which was something none of us had really done, even including the clients that they were presenting to. And um, we had the pleasure of working with Horizon Media and Little Caesars in the spring. And I had one student who actually brought his mom into his presentation to uh, talk to the Little Caesars client about uh, what mealtime meant to her. So I think the students, you know, I've heard that same figure around disengagement as well. um, But they also took the opportunity to figure out how to make the best of a bad situation. I love that he brought in his mom. Did he get an A? It, of course. It was so <laughs> cute. He totally got an A. <laughs> uh, Yusuf, you mentioned, you know, different ways, I think, you know, to bring in that kind of innovative mentality, um, especially as you kind of lead entrepreneurship initiatives at Lafayette. Um, you talk about more collaboration, Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, I talk about reimagining the entire approach to course development um, and and really bringing in more committed stakeholders to that process, whether that be alumni with industry expertise, industry partners um, that oftentimes we lean on for internships or or job offers for our students after graduation. Um, So I, I think it's imperative as we transition to Uh, this remote first environment, which is really what we're going to see for the foreseeable future, um, that we create projects that allow students to, um, you know, really employ a lot of self-agency and self-efficacy and self-direction in their learning, and and that the the projects are really consequential, uh, so, so, so students are able to put forth that effort and really do the innovative things 
um, that Beth had talked about and, and certainly we've seen in other contexts. Yeah, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, uh, you know, as I've been kind of thinking about the college experience, uh, which I'm a few years out of college, I think, sadly, <laughs> like 20 years out of college at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, in terms of the contrast between the way college is taught, the way you learn uh, about your career, your profession, and then the reality of actually working in it. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot in quarantine is how I don't think college really prepares you for how isolated work life feels, even when you're in a, a you know, even in an open plan office, uh, just that in college, you're always, it's, there's a communal atmosphere. There's a, there's a, a group atmosphere mentality. You feel like you're always kind of part of a larger group. And I, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. You're both obviously way more, uh, you know, immersed in this world right now. But I feel like the the quarantine era has actually kind of helped prepare folks for the fact that you're kind of always alone, um, which sounds way more dark than I meant it to. <laughs> like you, you kind of like you. I really felt like when I got out into the world, it was very much like, uh, all right, well, anyway, here's your desk and uh, good luck. I agree with you. I think. I think I've seen a lot of really encouraging innovation as we've uh, shifted through this space. I mean, certainly in the spring, it was just panic mode, like how do we get to the end of the semester? Um, But in working on my own classes and talking to colleagues, I I think it's really encouraging the innovation that we're seeing in terms of how we approach what that learning experience is for our students. It's interesting for me to hear you talk about it from an isolating perspective because I hadn't ever thought about it that way. But you're right. We focus so much on getting them into teams and working in team environments in the in-person classroom. And that, I think, for me, has been one of the biggest challenges is how do I replicate that when we're going to be online in, in some fashion in the fall. So I think that's a great point and an interesting way to think about how we do fashion those projects. Well, and, and I would add to that, it, it, in my experience, and, and, and both personally and, and, and with my experience working with students, is you get into the workforce and it's not so much you're isolated, but the onus is on you to identify the resources you're going to need to complete a particular project. Whereas in the classroom setting, you know, your your project partners and, and stakeholders are predefined for you oftentimes. And so I think this type of environment um, really is going to require students to be more creative and innovative and resourceful uh, in identifying um the people and the resources they're going to need to complete a given project. Yeah, I think you're really capturing kind of what I was trying to get at is that that feeling, um, you know, I was a magazine design major, magazine journalism major, and um, everything, the lanes felt really um, uh, defined uh, in the, in the sense of the work you were doing, the scope was always kind of clear, of course, right? It's, it's school assignments. And so you had so many, so many boxes checked and your, your guidelines were so clear. Uh, and then you get out in the real world and it's just chaos. (laughs) Every, every project you're like, wait, is this really all I'm getting? Is this really what I have to work from? And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, I started out as a journalist, I became a copywriter, I eventually became a, a you know, a department head for an agency. Every single one of those jobs, it was like, you're you're just given this pile of Legos and been like, so anyway, uh, make a rocket ship 
and um, you know it has to actually fly. And and so you know it's just everywhere you go, you realize like, oh, I I I really do have to kind of figure out not just how to do it, but what am I even doing, and how do I define it? And so I I don't know. Are there, Beth? You kind of started talking about this. Are there upsides of this this kind of isolation of this remote learning experience of of just how everyone's feeling a little more like they they like they have to kind of solve a lot more of of these issues themselves than to have everything clearly defined for success well as you were talking i was thinking unfortunately some of my students may say i I do prepare them well for that because some of them probably feel like some of my projects are a bit chaotic (laughs) Um, because you know i do sometimes uh leave them to their their own devices and i don't know if that's my personality or my experience on the agency world as well um but I, i think one of the things that we're going to see more of um, along those lines. We've talked about this concept of the flipped classroom for years, and some people do it better than others, but I, you know, I think few of us have truly embraced it, and that's the idea that they learn the content outside of the classroom through videos or readings or what have you, and really leaning in on the in-person classroom experience to workshop, discuss, um, really get roll your sleeves up um, with the uh, concepts. And, you know, certainly for me and many of my colleagues at Newhouse, that's the approach that we're taking for the fall, knowing that it's highly likely that at some point, even though we're trying for hybrid classes, we're all sort of betting on the fact that we'll be online at some point anyway. Yeah, I want to kind of ask you both, you know, how you feel about returning to campus in some capacity? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, we're, I'm excited to do it uh, at Lafayette College. Um, we, we have uh, essentially decided we are going to go remote, uh, but we will still have approximately 800 students on campus who, uh, for extenuating circumstances, need to be uh, on campus to do their research or to complete their studies. Um, you know, we've certainly taken every safety um safety precaution that we could to make sure the environment is is ready for that type of learning. Um, but but I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get back and, and look forward to working with students in, in any way that I can. Yeah, but there is a risk, right, as Beth, you wrote um, in your piece uh, that we're ignoring because part of the experience um, is the social part. So as much as you kind of try to put these rules on paper, there's a risk that um, it's not going to actually... <laughs> Uh, be practiced fully because um, the onus is on the students to almost follow the rule book, the playbook um, of sorts uh, as, as closely as possible. Yeah, the onus is completely on the students. Um, I was actually just recently reading the quarantine rules that went out, which sort of read like you're on your own to me. Uh, and those are the, the government quarantine, not university quarantine rules. Um, look, I, I think none of us would be professors if we didn't enjoy the students. So, you know, we are as anxious as the students are to get back in some capacity. Um, I, I do think the in-person aspect of it, and at Syracuse University, we are still talking about a hybrid model where we bring half of the students into the classroom and the other half Skype in. And my fear with that model is it becomes 
a less than great experience for both cohorts. You know, how do you create a meaningful in-person experience when you're also struggling to engage students who are Skyping in uh, and maintaining social distancing and, and speaking with a mask on? Um, so again, I think that just leads to really having to get uh, creative about not just the content delivery, but also the projects and the hands-on learning experiences so the students can walk away with something meaningful. Yeah, you know, I was really exposed to kind of the, you know, that that there are cer- certain students clearly have adapted commendably. I, I was going to say adapted well, but I mean, adapted as well as and, and more, maybe more, even more impressively than I would have expected. But uh, when, when quarantine first started, I volunteered uh, on Twitter. I just said, you know, hey, if you teach a class, I'll come. I'll, I'll be a guest. Or uh, more importantly, I'll find you a guest. Uh, you know, if you just sudden, suddenly need uh, need need content. Uh, and, and quite a few people took me up on it, which was uh, wonderful. Um, but, but what I really noticed is you have uh, not not to overly generalize, but you had kind of two kinds of students in each of these uh, sessions that I, I was a guest presenter on. Um, and it kind of came down to the ones with their cameras on and the ones with their cameras <laughs> off. Um, and, and the and the the ones with the cameras on uh, had a lot of good questions. They were really engaged. Uh, they really seemed to. They sent me follow up notes. You know, no one ever sent me a follow up note who had their camera mm-hmm. off. If that is, I mm-hmm. guess, the best way to put it. Like, no one seemed to really engage with the questions or with the the content. Um, and so it just it just made me realize, like, that's not a negative on those folks, but it just made me realize, hey, some people are probably really in their element doing this and feel really comfortable. And then other people clearly are not. And those are the ones who I think having a more structured, like show up for class, you can like, don't don't feel you have to expose your private life, uh, you know, in the background of, of your classroom setting. Uh, it just kind of highlighted that d- different people really have different, uh, different approaches that work for them. Yeah, and different personalities of students, right? You might just be an introvert anyways in class, and then it just amplifies um, with a with Zoom um, in front of you. Um, so I, you know, I think part of the thing that universities need to think about if they haven't already is, you know, for me being more of a mental health advocate, you know, is what are we what are we doing to add services creatively? Um, for, for, for students' well-being as they con- continue to constantly adjust. I mean, we're feeling it. I'm feeling it, right, as um, just a regular working adult. <laughs> so uh, I, I know, you know, they say kids are resilient and kids, you know, can adapt really well. But, you know, I think the college age, they're still trying to find their way, find their passion, find their career. Um, so there's just like a lot of uncertainty um, I'm curious if, you know, the students that graduated this year, um, you know, a lot of people were laid off, marketing budgets were cut. Um, have they, have you heard from them about landing somewhere and starting remotely or maybe pivoting to something else? Um, what's going on with your recent graduates? Yeah, it's certainly a, a challenging uh, economic environment. And so, you know, a number of our students were fortunate enough to land at bigger organizations. And, you know, they seamlessly made that transition to remote work. Um, I do know a number of internships and, and, and uh, opportunities at smaller companies uh, that unfortunately uh, went by the wayside as a result of COVID and the pandemic. 
I was actually really pleasantly surprised at both how how many internships were allowed to uh, proceed remotely. And I am getting a lot of emails from my students that they have gotten jobs. Uh, it was absolutely not what I would have predicted um, back in May. So I think that's that's a good... And, and friends reaching out to me saying, hey, I'm hiring. Do you have any students? So I hope that's a good sign for the future. And I want to... I'm sorry, go oh, ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, I was ahead. just going to say some, some of the success and, and measures that, that we've taken... I was really trying to be proactive and, and reach out to the alumni network and encouraging our students to, to utilize those resources. So going back to what you said earlier, Scott, about you know the necessity of becoming more resourceful than ever in this remote first environment, um, you know the, the days of companies showing up on campus and you know banging down your door to, to, to get you to work at their organizations, that, that shifted. And so students have had to be more resourceful in making sure that uh, they're they're able to get access to the opportunities that are out there. Before we run out of time, you've both been very generous with your time. Uh, I want to talk about a subject that that's um, very important to me, very important to many people, uh, especially in the in the industries that we cover, uh, which is about how do we widen the lanes of going into these into the marketing industry, into advertising, into creativity. Um, how do we get more people of different backgrounds? Um, how do we kind of erase some of the systemic classism that's that's inherent when you have uh, things like portfolio schools and the and you know aspects of advertising that are just very cost prohibitive uh, for a lot of people. And uh, it feels like, you know, a lot of the diversity discussions we've had over the last few months have really been about, have boiled down to, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, what, what many feel is a classism issue of there's just a separation of what's, what's attainable uh, for different people. And I, so, so it's, a, it's a, a very difficult question to answer, especially in a short amount of time. But I am curious for both of you, how do we widen those lanes? How do we make education and just access to the marketing industries more accessible for a wider array, wider range of people. Uh, and it, yeah, I'd be curious to hear what you think. Well, I'm of the mindset that we need to start earlier. Um, we need to be getting into the high schools and talking to high school students about what advertising and marketing is all about. Um, because once they're in college, they're already starting, you know, they've already started to think about something very specific. And if that wasn't a career that you even knew existed, um, then it's very hard to focus in on it. So I w- would start with uh, trying to get in programs into high schools and getting those guest speakers into kids at a younger age. Yeah, I mean, we, we absolutely have to be intentional about it. Um, it's, it's not going to solve itself on its own. And, you know, I think one way to do that is to make connections between, you know, the, the things that students are interested and passionate about and how marketing and advertising and those opportunities can can help them advance uh, those causes. And increasingly, students are coming to Lafayette and other schools not to study particular subjects, but to solve specific problems. And if we can make that connection um, as to how marketing, advertising, how these disciplines can help them, um, I think we'll engage more students and, and certainly widen widen the lane of, of, of folks interested uh, in these disciplines. I know you didn't really ask me, David, but um, I, I <laughs> I'll, always, I'll answer. <laughs> always, I always want to know what you have to say. Well, I, I mean, to best point, you know, I think, you know, starting getting people exposed, be, getting communities exposed to 
um, possibilities is important. You know, I remember doing junior achievement as um, a high schooler and um, that, you know, shone a light on entrepreneurship um, and branding and whatnot. Um, But I will also say that as a person of color who has been on scholarships or grants her entire life um, for brands, you know, and companies that want to get involved, give people those kinds of opportunities. You know, there is such an income um, limit, uh, you know, for people who want to enter marketing and even media. Uh, So I think setting aside resources for those kinds of opportunities would be um, really, really helpful. Um, even when I wrote for my college paper, it was because of a grant. Otherwise, I would have had to do a different kind of work-study job, right? So, um, yeah. Yeah, here's a uh, here's a really sobering thing, and, and uh, I won't get into too, too many specifics because I haven't heard the exact updates, but when I worked at, uh, it's kind of like you, when I worked at um, my student newspaper, uh, that was my really only source of income because I was working full time uh, and and I did not have any uh, extra extra money to cover anything. So I had to I had to have that job, um, and it paid you know not much, but it paid uh, enough. And um, the I, I think it was like fifteen bucks a story, maybe ten bucks a story, uh, and then editors made maybe two hundred a week. Uh, now I believe they were considering a measure where the you the students have to pay to write for the student paper. Um, which, you know, it just, I, I couldn't have, I probably wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be talking to you. I I wouldn't be in journalism, uh, had I not had that, um, you know, had that income. Uh, and so it's just hearing that really gutted me because I was just like, wow, we're some days it feels like we're making headway and some days it feels like we're rolling backward. Uh, but, um, you know, it's, it's something where, uh, I definitely encourage you if you're listening to this and you feel that you are, uh, if you're concerned about breaking into this industry, if you have questions, you want to, you know, I don't know, if you just want some advice, reach out to me and co uh, at podcast at adweek.com and we'll do our best. It's podcast at adweek.com. We'll, we'll connect you with uh, who, whoever we can because I, I co, I feel like I can safely speak for us that uh, both of us are extremely passionate about helping uh, connect folks uh, with, with new opportunities, especially right now. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, I, I love connecting people and letting the sparks fly from there. And I want to thank um, our two professors who connected um, on this episode. I want to, again, thank you for both of your time, um, Yusuf and Beth. And thank you again for contributing uh, your opinion pieces to adweek.com. And I hope you have a safe, creative, productive um, semester ahead. We'll check back in with you, of course. Thank you very much. All right. Well, uh, as we mentioned earlier, we've got a fun second segment. Uh, It's you're in for a ride if you did not attend Adweek's uh, Next Tech event. Uh, Scott Galloway, professor and uh, tech pundit, uh, and winner of Ad, one of the winners of Adweek's Podcast of the Year awards last year, uh, he was our one of our keynote speakers at our Next Tech event and blew my mind in ways that I was not prepared for emotionally or physically. <laughs> like it was, it was something. And uh, so we are going to play you uh, some of us uh, Professor Galloway's uh, presentation where he talks about education quite a bit, about how the tech companies will likely look to disrupt the education world, about how his own college uh, he thinks will be likely almost certainly going fully virtual um and a lot of other topics holy cow he covers a lot of range so we will be back after a short break uh for professor galloway's talk from adweek next tech uh thank you again to beth and yusuf and we will be back uh, after a short break we're all wondering about the future 
but there's an entire generation already creating positive change in the world, and they're urging brands to do the same. Meet the Snapchat generation and learn more about them by visiting snapchat.com generation. That's snapchat.com generation. Come fall, we are going to see the mother of all disruption in what is one of the most overpriced industries that, is preying on, that has been preying on the hopes and dreams of the American middle class for the last 50 years, and that is U.S. higher ed. The rest of retail is absolutely getting kicked uh, in the nuts over and over, uh, extraordinary <clears throat> step down of 17%. Online grocery, again, 10 years out. We were at 2 or 3%. We're probably going to acceler- accelerate to 15 or 20%, and we're seeing growth across the organizations that offer grocery. If you think about grocery going from 2% to, say, 17 or 20 what you effectively have, uh, U.S. grocery is one of the largest consumer markets in the world at three quarters of a trillion dollars. You're going to have a minimum of 100 or $150 billion transition from one tertiary channel to digital channels. That will create extraordinary, extraordinary disruption and opportunities, whether it's cold storage or fulfillment or trying to figure out a way to um, uh, what consumers, how consumers like to shop for groceries online, how it changes their diet habits, what types of products packaging are especially well-suited for uh, digital fulfillment. But that is probably going to be the most transformative thing to happen, not only to grocery, but to CPG in the last 20 years. And we're seeing this again. The biggest players with the capital, the big box, the essential guys that have the capital to invest in direct-to-consumer are um, sucking the oxygen out of the room for for almost everyone else. We're also seeing, um, when when I speak to elected officials about the four, the themes they've heard before, they get it. What they don't usually understand is the scale. So imagine if you're Amazon, and Amazon and, and the hearings today are saying, we're only 4% of retail. How can you get angry at us? Well, that's not really the right number. Money is power. Money is the currency of power in our society. And Amazon has added to its market capitalization Walmart in the last five weeks. So they've added, they've added the value of the world's largest company, Walmart, in market capitalization just in a five-week period. These companies are not playing defense. They're not, they're not only not furloughing and not firing people, they're hiring people. Amazon is uh, dramatically increasing its, its hiring. Uh, I believe one of my predictions is that the most valuable company in 2025 will be a recently or prophylactically spun AWS. There's no pure play, way to play the cloud right now. You have to either crawl over a search engine, crawl over a software company, crawl over an e-commerce company. If the largest cloud company in the world uh, as an independent company, I think that becomes the most valuable company in the world. So just to give you a sense for wealth, this is out of date. His wealth is $180 billion. He could buy every NFL team, the three best uh, soccer teams in Europe. I'll let you argue about it. I get unbelievably emotional responses when I say that it's Man City, um, uh, Bayern Munich, and, and Real Madrid. People get very upset. And then if he wanted to take his new girlfriend to the movies, he could buy the second largest movie company. And then if he wanted to roll up in a Ferrari, he just might as well buy Ferrari. And then he'd have about, I think, 40 or $50 billion left over. Uh, this is a man who's now worth the GDP of Luxembourg and Kuwait combined. So their, tra- their challenge will be to maintain that kind of acceleration. And the only way they're going to do that is if they want to double their stock price, which is sort of the implicit promise any CEO makes to its investors. Otherwise, they'll go buy Zoom or Netflix. They have to grow their top line revenue by about a quarter of a trillion dollars, which limits them to a certain number of industries because most industries just aren't that big. They can't go after 
the even the television market. That industry is not big enough. And pretty soon where you get is uh, it's easy to predict where I think these companies are going to go because they can't feed a city by hunting squirrels. They have to go after big game. And most roads leads to one of two places. The first is healthcare. This is an industry that is incurring what I call the great dispersion. And that is that 99% of people who contract, endure, and develop the antibodies for COVID-19 will have not entered a doctor's office, much less a hospital, which is going to give incredible momentum to remote health and telemedicine, not only in terms of clearing out the regulation, but forcing anyone who wants to survive to adapt and figure out a way to deliver health care digitally and remotely. Uh, Amazon is starting uh, internally with employees. I think Amazon is going to be the biggest healthcare company in the world in about 10 years. They're partnering to test it on their own employees. There's no company better suited to know your body mass index, whether you're in a monogamous relationship, your income, what you eat, all the inputs into how healthy you should or could be. I think they will probably start in diagnostics or in health insurance. What is the great unlock in business? An unlock is when you take existing resources and think about them in a different way and unlock tremendous shareholder value. The first big unlock was Apple deciding to turn stores into their primary distribution channel. Just about the time stores were supposedly going away, they took $7 billion out of advertising and opened 550 temples into the brand. I don't think the iPhone's the most innovative thing they've done. I think it's their direct distribution that took control of their brand, which is gives a halo over the iPhone, which is probably an inferior product to the Samsung Galaxy and it enables them to charge the highest margins ever, most profitable product in history. Second big unlock, Amazon Prime, and that is figuring out a way to have a recurring revenue relationship with 83% of U.S. households. More households have a recurring revenue relationship with Amazon vis-a-vis Prime than decorate a Christmas tree, have a pet, go to church, own a gun. I think the last two are the same people uh, voted in the 2016 election. Try and name another company, private company, that has a relationship with 83% of U.S. households uh, more than $100 a year. The next big unlock, Walmart looking at its 5,500 stores, not as liabilities, but as assets, and thinking these are just well-lit, well-staffed warehouses, and figuring out a way to say, okay, people love our grocery, but our in-store experience, not so much. So if we can offer people this without taxing them with this, boom, unlock. And that's probably added $100 billion in shareholder value, thinking of their stores as warehouses as opposed to just stores. The next big unlock, the next big unlock was Amazon this quarter said, sit down, we're not going to be profitable, we're reinvesting all of the $3 billion in net income back into the following. We're going to offer the world's first vaccinated supply chain through enhanced cleaning, new protocols, hiring new workers. We're going to offer vendors, customers, employees, suppliers, the first fully vaccinated supply chain, which overnight has become arguably the largest consumer category in the world other than testing. Uh, and this is staggering. No other company is vertical. No other company has the leadership. No other company has has the capital and the relationship and the trust with households to say, well, if you want a fully vaccinated supply chain, there's only one firm in the world that offers it, and it's a firm in Seattle. Let's talk about Facebook and Google. They had two-thirds of the digital ad spend market uh, as you see, they are growing exceptionally fast. They took a bit of a hit, but they're going to consolidate the market and they're going to come back um, even stronger. So we're going to see the V that everyone's hoping for in our economy, Google and Facebook. I think it's unlikely to happen in the U.S., but just as they took a violent downturn, the, the rip back is going to be equally violent. After the rains return, those elephants are going to have more foliage themselves. I think there's going to be a comorbidity, if you will amongst other uh, media companies. People don't understand the scale of these firms. Google could buy 
Google's cash on hand is enough to buy Airbus and Boeing. It's greater than the defense budgets of UK and Australia. That's just the cash they have on hand. In any given day or any given week, they basically lose or gain the value of the old the old titans. WPP, IPG, Omnicom, they're really irrelevant at this point. Uh, think about this. Google loses their value or gains it in a 48-hour period. We're also seeing these firms are playing uh, offense. If you want to know who the best people at Condé Nast and Hearst are, simple. They'll be in Google's cafeteria or Facebook's cafeteria by September 1. They're incredible accelerants. If you're a young, talented person, wouldn't you rather live the life of a 30-year-old as opposed to a 22-year-old? And that's what essentially Google offers in terms of compensation, role, and responsibility. And we're, we're, we're I think the best way to look in media around what's going to survive and what isn't is simple. Percentage of revenue from subscription. People get lazy and say, digital winners, analog losers. That's actually not true. Uh, BuzzFeed, Vox, Vice, in real trouble. New York Times, going to survive two-thirds of its revenue from subscription. So it's really a function of that, again, recurring revenue. Advertising sucks. We all realize it. We like to pretend it's not true, and anyone with money is opting out. If you uh, Advertising has become a tax that the poor and the technologically illiterate have to pay, and people are opting out. This bears out in terms of shareholder value. There's a strong correlation between shareholder returns and the percentage of revenues you get from subscription in the media market. And we're going to see a lot of digital players uh, basically not make it out of the ICU. And we're also seeing a lot of um, terrestrial players file bankruptcy for the second time. Radio is the next one that's going to go Chapter 22. Mortality rate of Corona, 0.1 to 4.0%, depending on the region. I think 1 in 10 to 1 in 5 media companies are going to go out of business in the next 12 to 24 months. We're going to see Facebook and Google come back and own 80% of the digital market. These companies should absolutely be broken up. Power corrupts. These are some of the most corrupt organizations in the world now. Let's talk about Apple. They basically doubled their stock price without, without increasing their earnings. Earnings. So why has this company been recast? Simple. They have gotten the memo, and they're moving to a recurring revenue company. They now do almost $1 in $4 in recurring revenue. Another key learning. Every company needs to launch pilot projects around a recurring revenue offering. And if anything sticks, make that the fastest growing part of your business. The fastest way to double the value of your company while maintaining flat revenues is to increase the percentage of revenues you're getting from recurring revenue. The market's like monogamy. They don't like serial dating where you have to re reinvent your business every day. This is especially important in the services industry where you spend too much time taking people you don't like to golf and to dinner. If you're at dinner with someone you don't like, it means you're selling an undifferentiated product. A very strong Apple TV launch. Why? With shitty content? Because they own the rails. They're coming up with a less expensive phone. Good for them. But they also need to add about $200 billion in revenue. Where are they going to go? Where are they going to go? My industry, which has become so fat and happy and lazy and has so many margin dollars up for grabs. I think Apple, Google, maybe Amazon will get into the business of certification and we'll get their greed glands going and go after what is probably the most disruptable industry. It's not healthcare. It's probably education. Again, the great dispersion. If you can take half of your classes online, which many universities are doing, if not 99%. By the way, by the way, for you sending your kids to college this fall, all those letters you've been getting about a hybrid experience and welcoming the students back, that is bullshit. Everyone's going fully online. They're just waiting till you sent in your deposits and your tuition before they announce it. There's going to be huge shifts in online to online education. This is not sustainable. 
I am not teaching 170 students starting in two weeks. I'm teaching 400. Because I've gone online, they said, well, you're no longer constrained by the class, which only had 170 seats. Will you raise your capacity? Yes. So I have 400 students who NYU is, get this, charging $7,000 for me to do this 10 nights. That's $2.8 million or about $280,000 a night. I am very good at what I do, sometimes even great. I am not worth $280,000 a night. That is not sustainable. The value proposition, certification plus experience plus education over tuition. And what we're going to see is a bunch of strident statements backpedaled. This notion that we have a national obligation to bring students back to campus. What bullshit? We have a national obligation not to be the new super spreaders. And these thoughtful, competent people, which are most of the people who are university leadership, are going to announce after they've cashed your check that we're moving fully online. There's no accident that the universities most strident about opening online have much higher tuitions and are dependent upon those tuition dollars to stay in business. We're also losing our cash cows, international students, who if you have an international student population of 20%, that means 40% of your cash cow is not showing up. Why are they not going to showing up? Because A, they've decided they probably don't want to come here, and B, we continue to promote these very xenophobic policies, so why would they show up and pay full freight to stay in a place that is overtly xenophobic. Who are some of the winners? The best are just going to get stronger. They have the capital, the technology, and the brand equity to temporarily go into their waiting list. It's a great time to have your kid on the waiting list of a tier one school. Once they come back, once a lot of the tier two and tier three schools are swept off the deck, they will consolidate power. I also think, or used to think, that they would partner with big tech. Now I'm beginning to believe the elite universities will just double down on exclusivity. The Ivy League only teaches 64,000 students a year. They're more spectacle than historic. They're going to double down on exclusivity. They're not public servants. They're luxury brands. What should you do? I apologize for going so fast, but I'm running out of time. I think if you're a striver, a younger person, I think this crisis will create enormous opportunity in what I call the great dispersion, specifically around education and healthcare. And I'd want to be the guy or gal that understands the intersection between technology, products, and healthcare or education. If you're an entrepreneur, the next 12 months are going to be a great time to start a business because inputs are going to be less expensive. People, real estate, new ideas. In your own personal life, cut costs. Look at every expense. I don't care if it's your cable company, your phone bill, your rent. Call everyone and either negotiate it down or exit it. This is a time to right-size your life. There's a dignity in living below your means and decide personally what you want to leave behind. If you're an executive, you need to cut costs. You need to employ the decade test. Take every trend out 10 years and decide if you're ready for it. Figure out a way to have a very strong narrative. You need to over-communicate to your stakeholders in a time of crisis. If you're an investor, shift your focus to the new disruptor class. The narrative is more important than the numbers. Companies like Lemonade, Airbnb are going to capture a disproportionate amount of the market capitalization. The IPO class of 2020 will be the best-performing IPO class of the last 10 years. (sighs) What is the profound opportunity? And I'm almost done. There's a meaningful opportunity professionally, and that is while a lot of people are in the pits because they can't work from home, you have an opportunity to lap the competition. So if you're blessed with some economic security and a company that lets you work from home, you should be working 24 by 7 now. I don't like to work. I'm really good at not working. I want to spend the majority of the rest of my life not working. So I am working around the clock right now because just as in NASCAR, the race is not one on the track. It's one in the pits. If you can save two seconds in the pits... At 220 miles an hour, that's an eighth of a mile. So while a lot of people are in the pits, you want to have the pedal to the metal. There's a meaningful opportunity. The profound opportunity is to, in weeks, accomplish what takes decades with respect to the repair and the cementing 
of the key assets in our life, specifically our relationships. I want you to ask three questions. Is it time for you to pivot to becoming the caregiver for your parents that they were for you? Do you have the relationship with the siblings that you want, with siblings that you want? If you were forced to say goodbye to a loved one over FaceTime because of the novel coronavirus, is your relationship where you would want it to be? And finally, have you let friendships wane? Have you let perceived slights or competitiveness or just general bullshit get in the way of joyous friendships? There is a meaningful opportunity to lap the competition professionally, but there is a profound opportunity for the repair and the cementing of relationships. Decades and days, acceleration of 10 years, dispersion resulting in healthcare and education. My name is Scott Galloway. I teach at NYU, and I appreciate your time. All right. That was uh, Professor Scott Calloway from Adweek's Next Tech event. Uh, big thanks again to our guests uh, for coming on the show today. Don't forget, you can drop us a note anytime at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. And be sure to check out adweek.com for uh, a lot of the stories we talked about. And uh, you can look up all of Professor Galloway's comments in our article uh, from his presentation. This week's episode was produced by Co-M and edited by Lane McGivney. Our theme music is by Home. If you have not already, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Those reviews mean a lot to us personally, and they help new listeners discover the show. For Adweek, I'm David Greiner, and we will be back next week. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just a thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content, so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.